Folks, the Ring of Fire is sponsored by JustCoffee.coop. That's JustCoffee.coop. If you like fair trade, delicious coffee, tea, or chocolate, head over to JustCoffee.coop. Use the coupon code MAJORITY and get 10% off. There's free shipping. You have no reason not to get this great coffee. It's a great outfit in Madison, Wisconsin, which supported the protests there. JustCoffee.coop. Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Farron Cousins sitting in for Mike Papantonio, Sam Cedar, and Bobby Kennedy this week. Today on Ring of Fire, Kira Lerner from Think Progress is going to tell us about the new restrictive voting laws that Republicans are working on. Also from Think Progress, Justice Editor Ian Milheiser is going to discuss the legal problems that have arisen from having a know-nothing president. Salon.com contributor Chauncey DeVega will be here to talk about Trump's white nationalist cabinet. Richard Escal, host of The Zero Hour, will tell us why Paul Ryan really wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Author C.J. Werleman will explain how Trump's climate change denial will lead to a spike in global terrorism. And attorney Andy McGraw will tell us why the batteries on e-cigarettes are exploding and disfiguring consumers. If you want to help support the show and keep it free from corporate influence, sign up for the Ring of Fire podcast today. You'll have the option of signing up for a free hour of our show or become a member and get the full show commercial free plus bonus content that you can't hear anywhere else. Go to rofpodcast.com and sign up. That's rofpodcast.com and help support independent media. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash TV. We deliver fresh video content every day of the week, so subscribe and stay on top of the news that matters to Progressive. That's youtube.com slash TV. I wanted to start off today on a more positive note. You know, there's so much negative news that we've got to talk about. So I thought it'd be nice to go ahead and just talk about one good thing that has happened in the United States since the the 2016 election. And that positive thing, that good thing that we're seeing happening all across the country right now is that people are getting active. I mean, when we look at what's happened in just the last week, we have Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, Joni Ernst, Tom Cotton, all of these people and many others are being confronted at town halls, at their state offices, at their offices in Washington, D.C. People are getting active, they're showing up, and they're demanding answers. They want these Republicans to tell them explicitly, why do you want to repeal the Affordable Care Act? Tell me why you think it's a better idea to repeal health insurance for 20 to 30 million American citizens. Why is that a good idea? Why do you want to give tax cuts to 400 families in the United States, but take away health insurance for people with pre-existing conditions, people who otherwise could not afford to get their diabetes medication or their heart medication or any medication? Why? 
That's what these people are demanding. And Republicans simply can't handle it. What we have seen this week is phenomenal. The, the video of the woman that, that stood up during Tom Cotton's town hall, where she confronted him and said, my husband is dying. I have pre-existing conditions. Were it not for the Affordable Care Act, we'd be dead. Or we'd be homeless if we did survive because we couldn't afford it. And you want to take that away, Senator Cotton. What kind of health insurance plan do you have? That's what she asked him. And the crowd went wild. Down in Texas this week, Ted Cruz's constituents went to his state office where he was not there. So they held a town hall without Ted Cruz. They want answers. And you know what? It's not just about health care. They want answers as to why Republicans refuse to stand up to Donald Trump. They want to know why they won't go and investigate this man's business dealings that are more than likely, I mean, it's it, the evidence is becoming overwhelming that there is some kind of illegal conflict of interest between Donald Trump's businesses, uh, specifically Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., and the emoluments clause. They want to know why Republicans won't even look into it. And as Rand Paul told us about a week ago, well, it just doesn't make sense for Republicans to investigate other Republicans. They're putting party over country. And the voters finally understand that. They see what's happening. But here's the catch. This anger has to sustain itself. These people have to remember how they feel right now. And they got to carry it through to the 2018 midterms, to the 2020 general election. Because we can't go through this every two years. These Republicans that people are so angry at now, they told us what they were going to do during the campaigns. They told us that they wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And yet they still got voted in. I guess most people just assumed that they wouldn't actually try to do it. But now people have awoken. They understand the dangers, the threats that the Republican Party itself actually poses, not just to democracy, but to our very lives. If you cannot afford health insurance, then it's unlikely that you can afford medication. If you can't afford medication to treat conditions that require daily medication, diabetes, asthma, uh, uh, heart conditions, you can't survive. And that's what this is starting to boil down to now. People see this not as an ideological fight. It's not just against the Republicans. They're trying to fight for survival at this point. And they do see that there is one party leading the charge to take the ability to fight for survival away from them. That's what this Affordable Care Act fight is about. And I'm glad that it, it has evolved to take on more than just the Affordable Care Act, demanding answers, uh, demanding re Trump releases tax returns, demanding that they investigate him, that they figure out what business ties he has in what countries, who's doing what and where and when and why, and answer these questions and look into it to make sure that our president of the United States is not simply using this office to make a quick buck. Because on the surface, it certainly appears that that is what he is doing. He has made it clear that he wants to get richer off the office of the presidency.
and the voters aren't happy. Bipartisan majorities are not happy with the performance of the president. They're not happy with the performance of Congress, and they're not happy with what they see happening every single day in this country since Donald Trump and his Republican-controlled uh, Congress and Senate were sworn in for this term. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have attorney Andy McGraw with us. He's going to tell us about the dangers of e-cigarette batteries. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Farron Cousins sitting in for Pat, Bobby, and Sam this week. While there are currently no long-term studies available on the health effects of e-cigarettes and vaping, there are some dangers that consumers need to be aware of with these devices. And joining me now to discuss these dangers is attorney Andy McGraw. Andy, these e-cigarette devices, these vaping devices... um, Obviously, we don't have any long-term studies about any of the the health effects from these things, but there is a danger that we do know about with these things. It's a danger that's been caught on video. FEMA has had to come out and issue a study on these things. What is this danger with these e-cigarette devices that people need to understand right now? Well, the the nature of the danger uh, comes down to the batteries and the way the batteries are shaped and the way the batteries are designed and, uh, frankly, the way the batteries are manufactured, they they pose a danger of exploding. And based on the the shape of the battery and the shape of these devices, when these batteries do explode, uh, it can turn these vaping or these e-cigarette devices into basically miniature rockets. And when that happens, they can explode, they can uh, cause chemical burns, Uh, They can cause severe injuries to whoever's using them at the time. And I I think it's important, you know, when we say these things explode, a lot of people think, okay, well, you know, just like a little, just kind of crumples up or maybe just pop. I mean, we are talking literal full-blown explosions uh, that are happening uh, sometimes right in people's face as they have this device in their mouth. I think some of the examples we've seen, we've seen people with second and third degree burns all over their face. We've seen people get parts of their tongue blown off, teeth blown right out of their mouth. I mean, this is a very, very serious issue. Uh, it's not just a small explosion. Like you said, these things do become rockets. Um, there, There's photographs that I've seen of a man who had one charging on his bathroom sink, you know, a porcelain sink. It exploded and completely demolished that porcelain sink. It blew pieces of that all over the bedroom. So these these things really do become high-powered explosives, uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the, the charging situation because that is uh, frequently cited as the reason for the, the fault in the battery, for the explosion of the battery. Uh, frequently these batteries are made overseas in China, uh, made uh, with inferior materials and with inferior production means. And a lot of times these, these aftermarket batteries are being charged in a way that affect the battery and make them, make them explode. And while the injuries suffered by these explosions are significant, 
they also are linked to fires uh, in the houses, in cars. When people plug them into their computers or, or plug them in using the wrong kind of chargers, a lot of times these batteries will explode and start huge fires in the house, huge fires in the car, and, again, cause those kinds of injuries that you were describing, destroying teeth, breaking necks, causing chemical burns and, and massive burns on legs where people frequently carry them in their pockets. And so when we're talking about these, the, the danger is with the batteries, uh, not necessarily the device itself, but the shape of the device is what allows it essentially to become a rocket. But it's the batteries themselves that are exploding, these lithium-ion batteries. And to the charging issue, you know, these things were, uh, first came out in 2007, um, that's when they were first introduced to consumers. They were patented in 2003. But in 2007, a USB charger is a lot different than a USB charger today. We've had USB 2.0, USB 3.0, uh, all kinds of things since then. So they put out different wattages of power. Perhaps the battery is old and cannot handle that much power if it's one that was produced a couple years ago. But the problem is that even if you are using this thing as directed, you know, they don't always specify what type of USB port, USB charger you need to be using. So even if you do follow the directions to the T, they may be outdated and you may not know that because they don't necessarily specify. Is that, is that uh, uh, something that we've seen here? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And it's, it's important to note that, you know, lithium-ion batteries are... are ubiquitous. They're in cell phones, they're in computers, and you have seen cases in which, you know, computer batteries have, have caught fire from, from, you know, design flaws or from problems, and, and there's a big problem with the Samsung phone with the batteries and that catching fire, but the difference between those batteries and the ones in these e-cigarettes and these vapes is the, the shape of the battery, the cylindrical shape specifically of the battery in these uh, e-cigarettes and vapes. That causes more of that kind of explosive rocket effect. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The USB chargers, they don't come with very good warnings on how to use them and specifically to not use them in, in other types of USB devices. So is there anything really that uh, somebody who uses one of these devices, do they need to go back, check their, check their owner's manual? Do they need to contact the company to make sure that they're doing this correctly? Or, you know, what what can people do right now if anyone listening to this is actually, you know, using one of these devices? How can they make sure that they avoid uh, uh, one of these problems, uh, obviously without knowing whether or not their battery is, is, is safe? Because I know this isn't happening to huge numbers of people, but it's happening to quite a few people. And the, the damage is turning out to be catastrophic for somebody. So what should somebody do right now listening to this to make sure that they don't um, have a user error that causes these battery defects. Like you said, the big thing is to read the manual. If the if the e-cig or the vape comes with a particular charger, use that charger. Don't try to plug it in through uh, an alternate means. Don't try to just plug it into your USB on your computer. Um, that's the big thing. Also, making sure that you're using quality, higher quality products, higher quality batteries, and not batteries that may be made by a, an overseas company that may be cutting corners, maybe putting out in, uh, inferior products that might be subject to these kinds of problems. So always look for, you know, maybe something 
from a manufacturer that you trust. Make sure you check out all the parts because a lot of times people will take these devices, uh, they'll modify them, they'll put in different batteries that last longer. Um, so I think the big thing, obviously, check that label. Make sure you know where this battery came from. Make sure it's from somebody that you trust. Uh, do a little research. You know, look up the company online. Look up your particular device manufacturer. See if they have been linked uh, to any of these problems because, you know, back to the injuries, you mentioned uh, somebody had their neck broken uh, when one of these explosions occurred. Yeah, and, and before we get to that, it is important also to know that because these devices do wear, tend to wear down the battery, a lot of times people carry spare batteries with them. And a lot of, you've seen some of the videos where these uh, batteries will explode in somebody's pocket or a purse or a backpack. So it's also important when you are carrying these, these batteries uh, as a backup to make sure they're carried in a, a special case or some kind of plastic case, something that won't conduct the electricity uh, because that is one of the things that the, the companies are, are pointing to in some of these device failures. But, yeah, with the, the explosive, I mean, it just goes to show the power uh, and the devastating effect of what can happen uh, when these things do explode. It, like, like we were saying, it can you know, destroy parts of your tongue. It can break your teeth. The force of it can, can break some of the, the parts of your neck bones. Uh, so, yeah, it, they don't fail very often, but when they do the results can be catastrophic. Absolutely. Andy, uh, appreciate your work on this issue. Keep it up. This is a very important issue, and I hope anyone out there listening or, or watching this online, I hope you understand the dangers of this. And, and if you are using one of these devices, if it feels like it's heating up, uh, you need to dispose of it, put it in an area where there are no people, but you got to do that immediately because once these chemical reactions begin in the battery... Um, uh, according to the reports, there is no stopping it. Andy, thank you for talking with us today. Darren, thank you for having me on. Andy McGraw is a plaintiff's attorney in Pensacola, Florida. Coming up, author C.J. Worleman will be here to tell us how Donald Trump is becoming one of the largest sponsors of terrorism on Earth. That's just ahead, so stay with us right here on Ring of Fire Radio. Even if it makes me blind, I just want to see the light. I'm a trial lawyer. I've spent countless hours pouring through documents that tell the story about the ugliest side of corporate America. Corporate media refuses to talk about these issues. The conduct by this company was deplorable. I'm going to paint a clear picture about how disturbing how corrupt corporate conduct has become in modern America. These are stories that no one else can tell. I'm Mike Papantonio, host of America's Lawyer. Question more. Find out more at ringoffireradio.com. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Farron Cousins, sitting in for Pat, Bobby, and Sam this week. You know, both independent and federal studies have confirmed that there is a link between climate change and terrorism. But today we have an administration in power that refuses to accept the science that tells us that climate change is real. And as a result, they're only helping to create unstable conditions across the globe. And these conditions help terrorist organizations with their recruiting. Joining me now to explain how this happens is C.J. Worleman, a contributor for Middle East Eye and author of the book Crucifying America. 
CJ, I remember uh, the very first Democratic uh, presidential debate amongst all the Democratic candidates back when we had five or six of them up there on stage. Very first question asked of all the candidates was, what is the greatest threat to the American people? Um, everyone on that stage, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, said Islamic terrorism. Bernie Sanders said climate change. Now, those two issues, uh, terrorism and climate change, are a lot more related, I think, than, than, than people give them credit for being linked. I mean, we have seen studies come out year after year now linking the two or at least pointing at some kind of causal relationship between terrorism and climate change. You just wrote a phenomenal piece uh, on MiddleEastEye.com where you talk about this issue and you bring up the fact that back in 2002, Osama bin Laden specifically said that climate change, the destruction of the environment by the United States, was one of the reasons that he carried out the attacks on 9-11. Uh, take us through that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't, we, we do see these things differently. We see terrorism and climate change differently because we see one as a social problem and the other one as a, a natural problem or as, you know, we, we see the effects of climate change as natural disasters. But you know, the whole idea of natural disaster is a, is a misnomer because, you know, nature doesn't have disasters. That's just what nature does. But it's the social impact which comes after, you know, climactic uh, events or, uh, or climate calamities. And what my piece sort of uh, did was try and bring those two realities together. You can't combat terrorism at the same time you're ignoring climate change. And... Um, and there's, there's a growing body of research, particularly in terrorism studies, uh, of, of which I'm undertaking, that that um, you know that the future wars are going to be climate wars. And to give, a, I guess, your listeners a, a sample of of what we mean when we talk about climate wars is think about New Orleans. What was that? 2004 or 2005? Uh, 2005. Yeah. Yeah, 2005. Well. You know, what happened in New Orleans, you know, is a uh, took place in a, you know, the, the most industrialized country in the world, the, you know, the wealthiest country in the world. And, you know, we had the displacement of 250,000 residents who left New Orleans who never returned. You had wanton violence. You had, you know, uh, violence against relief teams. Uh, there was shootings. There was rapes. And in, in the end, it took 65,000 members of the, the National Guard to suppress and bring back and restore law and order in the city now if something can happen like that with with one cataclysmic event like it did in new orleans well this is a a, a view into the future in what's going to happen in weak and failing states and there's something like 30 weak and failing states around the world mostly in africa and and certainly parts of asia and these countries are extremely prone to the social disasters that follow climate change and, it, and it's happening now it's happening in syria which was a climate change war and, it, and certainly happened in darfur you know, a decade earlier. And what's really interesting, and I think a lot of people overlook this, I mean, it can it can kind of be boiled down into the most basic uh, phrase, and that is that resource scarcity breeds conflict. When we look back at the history of the world, you know, uh, nearly every conflict that has erupted is because one group has something that another group does not have and they want. And when we're talking in terms of climate change, we're going to start looking at this as one group has land that you can still farm on and produce food. And another group no longer has that due to extreme drought or, or, or flooding, rising sea levels. 
that have washed away the entire land. And we saw that in New Orleans. People suddenly found themselves, they, they, they had no access to water. They had no access to food. I mean, we saw people stranded on their, their rooftops. It, it, it takes us back to the very basic uh, animalistic nature of humans when we're simply fighting for survival to get the things that we need uh, to live to see another day, like water and food. And so for people to overlook this link between climate change, between terrorism and conflict, you know, it, it does a huge disservice and it really does put us all in danger. And that's what we're seeing right now in the United States with Donald Trump. This man does not think that climate change is real. We have uh, the Pentagon has been telling us that it is a national security threat for at least 11 years at this point. Uh, we have some evidence that suggests that uh, both Ronald Reagan's uh, Defense Department and George H.W. Bush's Defense Departments warned them of the threat of climate change to national security. We would think, as a country, we would have evolved uh, uh, from the 1980s. Instead, it appears today we're going backwards. Yeah, we're, we're pretending it's uh, it's not happening, you know, and uh, we, we have absolutely no political momentum in, a, in addressing it. And at the same time, we give lip service to fighting terrorism. But, you know, this is, as uh, you pointed to that Pentagon's assessment of, you know, the threat analysis of uh, climate, they call it a force or a threat multiplier, rather. And, um, you know, we, we saw, you know, those exact dynamics that you, you explained uh, took place in Darfur. You know, you had uh, soil erosion, you had, you know, um, uh, decrease in rainfall, you had, you know, contestations between, you know, the Arab part of the population and the African tribes uh, in that state, which in, in, in inevitably led to genocide. And we saw the same dynamics play out in the Syrian conflict. Syria went through its first, its worst drought in 900 years, displacing 1.2 million Syrian farmers off their land, sending them into the urban cities. And once you have that kind of, you know, mass dislocation of people, then you have new urban contestations, new political contestations in the city, new fight for resources. You know, the cost of living goes up, the cost of fuel goes up, jobs become less plentiful, housing becomes less available. And, you know, as we've seen from history, there'll always be an outgroup or, you know, to be scapegoated for uh, the, the plight of those people. And when a weak state, weak states like Syria don't have the ability to, to deal with those sort of frustrations and anxieties, those economic uh, frustrations, anxieties that, that people have, and they can't quell that kind of unrest, then they're only left with one option, to fire upon their own people. And that's what we saw in Syria. And that's one of the things that we've seen with um, ISIL and, and, and Al-Qaeda, is that when you have a specific area, uh, of, I guess particularly in the Middle East where we're seeing this uh, arise, you know, uh, farmers no longer have a way of life due to drought. They move into the cities. They cannot find work. And so these extremist organizations suddenly do become appealing because they say, come with us, come work with us. We will provide a better life. We will make things fair again. You just have to to be a part of us, uh, you know, and, and I think that that's part of the appeal to these groups. It's not necessarily the extremism. It is the, yep. you know, back to the basics of I, I have to fight for my life to be able to provide the kind of life I need to live, you know, provide for my family. And, and that is something that we saw with Al Qaeda. Uh, and that's something that we're seeing with ISIL uh, in the Middle East today. Yep, exactly. You, you, this rapid urbanization, which is happening in the global stuff, you know, the dynamic you're talking about, is you're seeing 
you know, more and more people living on the periphery of the state, living in these slums outside of these mega cities. So you're going to have eventually nobody living in these rural subsistence, you know, uh, areas of the world. They're going to be living in these mega cities. As mega cities become bigger, you have more and more people living in the slums, in the slums outside control of the state. So the state no longer has a monopoly of violence. And where the state no longer has a monopoly of violence, we're seeing these non-state militias and terrorist groups take form to provide security for people who don't ordinarily have it. And then you have eventually, you know, the breakdown of the of the state itself. Uh, CJ, we need to take a, a quick break here. Uh, we're going to pick up with more of this when we come back. And when we come back, I also want to talk about just the general uh, political stances that are happening in the United States right now with regards uh, to climate change. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. We'll be right back. We're back on Ring of Fire. I'm Farron Cousins. Right now I'm talking with author C.J. Whirleman about the link between climate change and terrorism and how Donald Trump is playing into the hands of groups like ISIL and Al-Qaeda by denying that climate change is even happening. C.J., before the break, uh, we were discussing the fact that obviously we're seeing uh, conflicts right now across uh, the planet arise because of the effects of climate change. It's something we've been seeing for, for 15 years at this point. But when we look at the United States right now, we have an administration. We're, we're coming off of eight years of President Obama, who at least acknowledged that climate change was real, it is a threat, and that something needs to happen. We didn't see as much action on the issue as we saw talk, but now this administration, this Trump administration, does not even believe that this is a real thing. Um, uh, here, another example here, Marco Rubio, Senator from, uh, my home state of Florida here is from the, the Miami area. And for the last few months, we have seen what they're calling King tides in Miami. And that is where, when the high tide comes in, the water is rushing over the streets, creating this flooding, uh, twice a day. Now they're saying that it's King tides. This is unnatural. It's not going to sustain but this is what the water just does now down there because of climate change, because of rising sea levels and warmer seas and water expanding. They still refuse to look at this evidence and say that we have a problem. So how do we move forward when we have so many people uh, representing us in Washington, D.C. that continue to, to refuse to acknowledge the science behind it? Yeah, I mean, it's a massive problem. It's, you know, it's, it's embedded within a deeply psychological problem. Um, and when you break it down to the individual, I mean, climate change, we're, we're feeling the effects that we're feeling now, climate change is happening now. It's no longer a forecast. It's, it's happening today. We're feeling it. We're experiencing it. You're, you're seeing it with your own eyes, as you were just explaining then in Florida. But what we're experiencing now was the carbon emission which were put into the atmosphere 50 years ago. So... You know, so it, it, the, the people who first, the, the, the individuals who first put these carbon emissions were before us. And, you know, that's going to take generations before, if, if we cut carbon emissions today, we won't feel the effects of what we're doing today for another 50 or 100 years. So for an individual to accept responsibility for something that took place before him and for the, the individual to accept 
the impacts of what he can do, which will be beyond his lifetime. It's very hard for people to grasp that concept. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to, you know, uh, do you want <laughs> what kind of world do you want for your children? I guess that's that's how you break it down. But I mean, at the same time, you've got that psychological, that personal psychological uh, issue compounded and uh, alongside, you know, disinformation, which is pumped into political discourse by big oil-funded politicians and big big oil-funded political parties, which is, uh, you know, certainly impacting our will to fight the greatest existential crisis of our time. And it is interesting that we do have so many people out there uh, working for the fossil fuel industry out there you know, uh, uh, putting together these press releases, these these blog articles saying that it's a hoax, the climate change isn't real, that we're actually in a period of global cooling. I mean, uh, that's one of the talking points they use. And, and on the other side, sometimes they'll tell us that, look, if we do have melting Arctic sea ice, well, hey, that's great because it's going to open up new shipping lanes so we can get you your crap sooner. We can get it to you cheaper because we don't have to go all the way around the planet. I mean, that's the kind of of misinformation and disinformation that we're up against just trying to make the planet or or keep the planet habitable. And and I don't think people understand that. This isn't about personal gain for people who are interested in protecting the planet. The only thing we have to gain is a planet that we can still live on in 10 or 15 years. Exactly. And part of that problem, and this is the, the, you know, the greatest injustice about climate change is, you know, nobody in the global south denies climate change because they're experiencing it. They're, they're witnessing, you know, drought-led famines and, de- you know, decreasing rainfall and, you know, shrinking rivers and all the, you know, all the pl- all political and the social problems which have come from it, you know, and the conflict and the war. It's happening to them. But we in the West have the luxury of still being able to deny it because we live in functioning states that have the capacity to still provide welfare, to still provide security, um, to be able to resist storms, build better dikes, better you know uh, 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 dam systems, and um, so we can pretend it's not happening because we still don't feel it as much as what you know people in the global south. Nobody in the global south is denying it because they're, they're feeling the impact of it every day. And it's interesting when we talk about the fact, and this uh, this was something you mentioned in your piece, and this was something that Al Gore mentioned in an inconvenient truth. You know, we think maybe it's a problem now when we've got, you know, a couple tens of thousands of immigrants coming into the United States every year. What happens when those numbers are 10 to 20 million every year because people no longer have land, because they no longer have food, because they no longer have access to water, because that is the reality that we are facing with climate change. And again, as you point out, these are no longer far off threats. This isn't something that we have to watch out for in 50 years if we do nothing. Time is up. This is happening now. The climate refugees have already started, you know, uh, across the world. And so I don't think anyone fully understands, especially not Donald Trump, you want to ban Muslims? What are you going to do about the fact that we're going to have millions of people coming into the United States because we helped destroy their land because we did nothing? Because of people like you sitting in power, refusing to acknowledge that a problem even exists. They're making it worse and they're very ill prepared uh, to handle these refugees, not just in terms of space, but in terms of resources. We can't sustain that. But we're going to have to find a way, aren't we? Absolutely, brother. 
So I, I, I guess at this point, you know, to go back to the original uh, uh, point we were on here is that this resource scarcity is a man-made problem. It's something that we did. It's something that we've been doing for decades, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. And we have enough evidence now to understand what we've done and what we're going to essentially, at this point, I believe, continue to do. So politically speaking, is there anything that can be done at this moment or are we stuck with a Trump administration for four years that's not going to act? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty much at the tipping point where it's, you know, I think we've now got a window that's less than a decade to uh, to get carbon emissions to a point, keeping it below 500 parts per million. Once we cross that, I think we're at 416 parts per million at the moment. Once we cross that 500 threshold, then it almost becomes impossible to keep the global temperature rising by the two degree Celsius target, you know, by 2050. Um, and once we cross that threshold, then you know we're we're not going to be able to reverse. Uh, the effects of what's happening around, you know, the, you know, the equator is just again become increasingly wetter. We have more floods, floods, and you know, greater storms along the equator. You're going to have uh, more droughts, you know, anywhere in, in land that's located between 30 and 60 degrees north and south of the equator. And then you're going to have the social and the conflicts which stem from that. So, I mean, it's almost a reality that is unavoidable. But you know, if we have eight years of the Trump presidency, then we've all but surrendered any opportunity to do anything about it. I mean, the window really is less than a decade now. And what we're looking at as a result of that is uh, is Donald Trump essentially becoming one of the largest sponsors of global terrorism by refusing to acknowledge the problem, by refusing to believe the scientists, and by refusing to do anything about it because this is only going to make things worse. We're going to see more and more people join up with the likes of Al-Qaeda and ISIL simply because they're promising them a better future, a way out of the, the destruction that the West has caused. And they can point to people like Donald Trump and say, see, this is the kind of man that has created your problem. CJ, unfortunately, we are out of time. It has been a pleasure talking with you today. Please keep up the great work. Thank Ready you. C.J. Whirlman is a contributor for Middle East Eye and the author of numerous books, including Crucifying America. After the break, we'll be talking with Richard Eskow, host of The Zero Hour, about the massive amount of money that Paul Ryan has raised by trying to destroy the Affordable Care Act. That's coming up, so stay with us right here on Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Mike Papantonio, and you've been listening to a free sample of Ring of Fire Radio. If you'd like to listen to the full show, subscribe to our weekly podcast at our website at ringoffireradio.com. It's your support that helps keep us on the air.